Hello and welcome to the After Dinner Podcast. My name is John Keeley and this is the podcast extension for ROI Show 526. Our noted guest for today is Dr. Simon Corderay, Chair of the History Department at Iowa State University. He will be talking to us about British-friendly societies, 1750 to 1914. The history buffs for this, that are joining us today are Jay Swords and Ed Broders. Ed, why don't you start us off? Thanks, John. Simon, you mentioned earlier in the show uh, that there were such a thing as women's uh, friendly societies. Can you give us a few more details about them, as in, um, did you have to be married to uh, someone in a male-friendly society in order to qualify? How did that all work? No, you definitely did not have to be married. Women were married and unmarried in those friendly societies. They tended to be local organizations. So in towns like Colchester in Essex or Bath in the southwest of England, you would have women's friendly societies, which often met in school rooms. They wouldn't meet in the pub because that was unrespectable and unacceptable. But they would meet in school rooms where there was um, a free place to uh, hold their meetings, a free way to get together and uh, deposit their subscriptions, and also just to in, enjoy some, some good company. And so they were quite unusual, but at the same time, they were also women's friendly societies were also, I think, far more common than historians have given them credit for. There is a historian by the name of Dot Jones who did some fantastic work on, whale, on, on Welsh women's friendly societies. And she found that, that there was a surprisingly large number and that while they were never particularly financially stable, they were incredibly important in the lives of their members. And so uh, given that there were subscriptions to be paid, was membership in a women's friendly society sort of self-regulating from a social class standpoint because if you didn't have the money to pay the subscriptions you weren't going to you weren't going to get in right they tended to be women either they were single and working or if they were married they were married in families where the breadwinner was probably an artisan or a better paid craftsman yeah so so they, they tended to be a um uh, a class element, although there were some women's friendly societies that had patrons who subsidized either the cost of administration or in some cases the cost of the benefits. And, and, and those societies would be open to a much wider range of women. Jay. So I'm going to kind of follow up on that. What we haven't talked about yet are um, individuals who are black or brown. Um, we, we, lose the the issue of slavery earlier in England than we do here in the States. Um, How did those folks, did they form exclusive societies? Were they very welcome in this friendly societies as a whole? Um, How did that kind of sort itself out? So there was a very small proportion of the population in the UK um, left after slavery. And so um, those organizations were primarily in London. There were definitely friendly societies for Britons of African descent in the big cities. In the countryside and in the smaller towns, not so much. Primarily, the 
influence of friendly societies on people of color would be in the United States, where, for example, um, British soldiers created a lodge of Freemasons specifically for African-Americans during the revolution. And there was also the Grand United Order of Oddfellows, which was exclusively for black Americans. And so, yeah, there are some organizations um, that are ethnically and racially distinctive and exclusive. But again, compared to the wider friendly society movement, they're not quite as numerous. All right, I'm going to pick up where Jay kind of left, let off, left off, I say, excuse me. You mentioned earlier that India had um, British friendly societies, although what India was going through was obviously very different than the rest of the UK. Um, how well did they pick up there? Were they more individuals that had me working for the British government or were um, citizens, high status citizens in, in, in uh, Indian society? Were they included? How did they uh, create their, their societies? Not so much um, the elites, but certainly working Indians were, if you extend the notion of a friendly society, to self-help organizations of any kind, then there were a, a, a wide variety of organizations in India based on the friendly society model, both for the Britons who are living there, also for Indians in the Indian civil service, and then for Indians who were working, um, again, primarily as skilled workers. So I think that this notion of friendly societies and the philosophy of voluntarism that they encapsulated and tried to encourage people to accept runs deep in Indian society. And so there's a kind of a natural affinity there between um, people in India and the friendly society ethos. So did, was there a backlash against those individuals from the higher upper class of the English people living there or individuals of Indian society? Not really. I mean, the British tended not to notice the Indians unless they became a problem. And in fact, there are uh, British missionaries who tried to encourage Indians to form friendly societies as a way both of uh, protecting each other in times of hardship, but also perhaps more importantly to the missionaries inculcating British values and outlooks. Okay. Ed. Yes. Um, one organization that I'm a little bit familiar with um, extends back into my uh, Schleswig-Holstein Northern German uh, cultural heritage. Um, but in the 19th century and early 20th century, um, I, I grew up in rural Iowa near a small town that never made it past 200. But uh, there used to be an old group um, amongst these immigrants uh, and, and their descendants. It was called Kronkverein. And that's a German term that I don't know what it means, but what they did, uh, they were social, sort of a local social safety net in that um, somebody would volunteer, voluntarily go into a, home, into a family's home if the woman had just had a baby and needed some help recovering, or if the husband got hurt, um, they would bring food and such things. Um, were there any others like that in this country that you're aware of? 
Oh, absolutely. The mutual aid societies and the Verein were certainly in that stream. The mutual aid societies were incredibly important for new immigrants to help them find their way in this strange new land. For people in small towns in Iowa of 200 people where there was no social safety net. And so that that notion of and, and that's part of what I was trying to refer to. At the, at, in talking about what historians omit from the textbooks, those kind of small self-help organizations were crucial to allowing people to survive and also to enabling us to understand each other as human beings, right? I mean, that notion of, of, of reciprocity, that, that, that sense is lost by the, the wage nexus, destroys the notion that we have a mutual responsibility to each other, but it destroys it only at the level of economic exchanges, not culturally. And so you see that, that sense of mutual aid on a very small scale throughout American society. Jay. So I'm interested along those lines. It certainly seems to me that, that you're talking about a population that is going to have um, some social significance within particularly small towns where you don't have uh, quite the aristocratic or the upper class uh, overlay. Um, are friendly societies breeding beds for political, um, for, for the rise of individuals within, within politics? Do we have sort of a, an informal uh, reciprocity here where, where somebody uses uh, those uh, connections in order to sort of jump into the political fray? Yeah, definitely. Friendly societies, because they were rule-bound and because they were governed by rules and regulations, and also because they were democratic. I mean, you had to vote on rule changes. You had to vote on, on various uh, provisions in the society, taught people how to act politically in a democracy. And so you see individuals coming out of the friendly society movement and to some extent going into politics, um, not so much as you do out of the labor movement, which is far more overtly political. But certainly there is, there is a very real notion of friendly societies as training grounds for democracy, perhaps not so much for the leadership, but certainly for teaching people how to behave and what expectations to have in a democratic polity. Okay. We would like to thank our guest for the 526th show, Dr. Simon Corduroy, chair of the history department at the Iowa State University, who talked to us about British Friendly Society 1750 to 1914. The history bus for today's show were Jay Swords and Ed Broders. ROI can be found at 9.30 p.m. Friday nights on KALA Radio or on the web at tunein.com. If you're looking for older programs, you'll find them at soundcloud.com. Just put KALA Radio in the search, click on the first icon, and then scroll down to find nearly a decade of ROI shows. You can also find ROI on all your favorite streaming platforms. ROI is recorded at station KALA, St. Ambrose University.